Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. If there is an iconic figure in American broadcast journalism, uh, it would have to be Tom Brokaw, uh, who was the, uh, for years, anchor of the NBC Nightly News, uh, Today Show host, and a correspondent who's covered some of the most momentous historical events of our time. Uh, his story is a great story in and of itself. As you will hear, we sat down the other day to talk about all of this. Uh, Tom Brokaw, always good to be with you. Um, you know, you are kind of an iconic figure in this country and in the news industry. Um, but like so many people who are iconic figures. You started off in a small town in South Dakota, and probably few people would figure that you uh, would be in the toast of New York City. And uh, So tell me a little bit about that and how you ended up getting on this, this path, this journey that you've taken. Well, I think it's the American story. Uh, I'm not unique. I think so many people have started just as I did and made their way to uh, the social, political, and cultural, and financial capital of the world, New York City, or to Washington, D.C., or wherever. In my case, uh, I had a very uh, working-class upbringing. My dad uh, was really abandoned by his family in the third grade, went out to kind of live on his own, was taken in by a Swedish immigrant who taught him how to drive a team of horses, deliver coal, dig a well, and then he made a transition to heavy equipment as a construction operator, and he was a genius at it. He just had an intuitive touch. And he courted my mother, who was at the opposite end of the scale. She was from an Irish-American family, very bookish. They were all college-educated, but Unfortunately, they were in the farm business at the height of the Depression, and it went under. But my dad pursued mother, and she wanted to be a journalist, oddly enough. Graduated hmm. from high school at 16, but couldn't afford to go to college. It cost $100 a year. And they married, and it was a real yin and yang relationship. Uh, you know, dad was can-do, go out and earn the money, very, uh, uh, very sensitive to people who, for one reason or another, had gone through his experience. I mean, for example, I grew up in a household in white bread America in which the biggest, three biggest heroes were Jesse Owens, Jackie Robinson, and Joe Lewis. Not because my dad was a sports fan, because he knew what they had to do to get to where they were. My mother, on the other hand, was a reader of books and a, someone who paid a lot of attention to what was going on in the world, got the news through radio in those days. My earliest experience with politics is my mother woke me up uh, on the morning of Harry Truman's election and said, we won. And it was almost a defiant proclamation. And a surprising one as and well because everybody one. went to she sleep very nervous that Dewey was yeah, going to win that election. Want, you know, out in South Dakota, they didn't see the little guy with the mustache as their <laughs> salvation. And um, I was eight years old. And it was the beginning of the mother and I would talk about politics from that time on, about what was going on in the world. So that was my foundation, David. Um, I was a Gabby kid. I was interested in what was going on in these working class towns where we lived. Then we moved to a town where they had a radio station. And uh, I was 15 and I arrived in town and within two months I was on the air at night after basketball practice doing a teenage disc jockey show and reading the news. Uh, and the budget. and what what uh, led you to to be so presumptuous as to ankle on over there and ask for a job? You know, I don't know, quite honestly. I mean, uh, because I here I was, I was uh, completely new in this town, and people still talk about it. God, you came in here as if you owned the place, you know. <laughs> and, um, 
and they kind of heard about me at the radio station and said, you know, we'd like to do this teenage disc jockey huh. show. Why don't you come up here and try out? So with my then-girlfriend, we ran this show, and then that led to a succession of jobs at that station in the summertime and so on. I'd but did you know at that point that this is what you wanted to do, that I you think wanted I to be a newsman? Yeah. My friends all say, look, we, we, we could see where you were going. You were always interested in public affairs and politics. And it was a town with a very high degree of intellectual accomplishment. We had, in the three years I was at that high school, we had two people go to Harvard on Fulbright scholarships, one to West Point, two to the Air Force Academy. And these were just the guys. If the women had been in the pool, then it would have blown the lights out because they were the brightest people in town. So there was a sense that you, you, know, that you could take on big challenges and accomplish them. Um, I had, you know, uh, my, my the career began in earnest when uh, I persuaded uh, a little newspaper in Chicago to give me a political column mm-hmm. when I was in college when I was 18. And it was insane that they did, and it was insane that yeah. I asked, but it, all, but it all worked out. It's those it's those opportunities that, you know, to... Well, I think that, you know, the difference between us, for example, and Great Britain, you know, we don't have that class system. You know, you don't have to be in a position from the time of birth on. Um, and I had good fortune along the way. The night of the 1960 election was, for me, uh, a turning point. Uh, I stayed up until 9 in the morning to watch everything that was going on. And at the end of that cycle, I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be a correspondent for NBC, uh, and I want to cover politics. Wow. Nixon Kennedy, one of the, the, the closest modern, in the modern era, the closest election. Right. And it was filled with drama, and it was the first real kind of um, overwhelming television news yeah. experience in politics. You know, we had Huntley and Brinkley who were so good at what they did, a new generation now moving into the White House and running against each other. It was beyond exciting, even for those of us out there in the Great Plains. Yeah. So I thought, you know, that's what I, and my friends now say. I remember you thinking that you could go to work for NBC News as a political correspondent. And I'd say, yeah, well, that's what I want that's, to do. That's, yeah, that's kind of astonishing. Huh. Now, you talked about all the great scholars that your little town – uh, Yankton, right? Is, yeah, right. That you uh, uh, produced. You were not among those great scholars. Well, I was through high school. <laughs> and then I came out of high school a real whiz kid. And I went immediately off the road uh, at the <laughs> University of Iowa. Uh, my line has been, I had a double major, Pi Phi's and Delta Gamma's. Uh, <laughs> they still have a booth reserved in the biggest bar in town now with a brass black. It's permanently reserved for Tom Brokaw, who spent <laughs> most of his freshman year here in 1958. You know, but I was working at the radio station there. I was the outstanding ROTC cadet. Um, when I kind of locked down and did things, they had an accelerated writing program for uh, freshman honor students, and I went in there and aced it. The rest of the stuff I just didn't show up for much. There was just too many other temptations. And it's probably true that once you, I mean, I found in my experience, once you decide that you know what you want to do in life, you kind of want to get through this college thing and just get on with it. Yeah, that my, my mother's analysis was they were, my parents were just befuddled by it because neither of them had gone to college. They'd saved for me to go to college. And then I'm down there, you know, burning it at both ends of the day and dropped out of Iowa and went back to South Dakota, had another raucous year and dropped out of school altogether. Um, What'd they say to you? Well, my dad did something really important. I was going to go to California and get a job. I didn't know what that meant, but I was going to go to California. He stood in the kitchen doorway. And one of the things you did not do in life was take on my father physically. (laughs) I knew better. And so I kind of hung out and got a couple of – I could always get a job at a radio station, for example. And then I – one morning, my mother and I always got up and watched the Today Show together before she went to work. And there was a guy on the uh, television station in Sioux City, Iowa, who was god-awful doing the morning cut-ins. And she said, you're so much better than he is. I'm driving you to Sioux City today. You're going to get his job. (laughs) And I did. And that began to turn me around. Then I could commute to the University of South Dakota. But the most important thing that happened was that I had this great friend in high school uh, by the name of Meredith Ald, who was all everything. She's a doctor's daughter. She was a straight-A student. She was an all-state course. She was girls' nation when I was boy state governor, by the way. And, uh, and she had the best kind of take on life. 
she wrote me this devastating letter in the course of all that, saying, I don't want to hear from you again. We weren't really dating, but we were great pals. She was breaking off our friendship because of my behavior and said, no one can understand what you're doing. Your parents are terribly disappointed with good reason. And uh, I'm just not interested in having a relationship with you anymore. Uh-huh. Big turnaround. And did, were you, did you remain friends forever? 54 years of marriage at this point. Oh, I see. <laughs> Oh, yes. It was, a, it was a breakthrough. We had never dated because the line on our friends and among the two of us was that you didn't date because she thought you fooled around too much and you thought she didn't fool around enough. So, <laughs> but we understood each other. So I did a big turnaround, and one day in the library, she came over and said, look, Tom, I went too far. And I said, no, I really needed to hear that, and especially from you. And uh, she said, well, let's go have a cup of coffee. So we went and had a cup of coffee. And one year later, we were married. Now, that stunned her friends and my friends. No one saw this coming. And it's been an astonishingly rich life for the two of us. Yeah. And still deeply in love and, uh, you know, have a robust appetite for going out there and, and uh, taking on life. Yeah. Well, I can attest to that. You've met my wife, Susan. I right. can attest exactly. to that. Exactly. You, uh, there's nothing There's, there's nothing, nothing, nothing more better. important. There's nothing, nothing more better. important. Yeah. So you uh, you got you you were you briefly at a TV station in Sioux City. Then I went from there, got married, and got a job, an entry level job in Omaha, Nebraska, for a hundred bucks a week. And the news uh, department had a wonderful news director. Very, he hired me. He said, "I've never had anybody walk in here who knew as much about politics as you did." And we mm-hmm. needed somebody like that on the staff. So in the '64 uh, election. The station was owned by a seed company, and they had a they had a, a twin-engine airplane. He'd say, uh, something's going on in Iowa. They'd get the plane and go over there and come back and do a report for us. Hubert Humphrey comes back to South Dakota for the first time since he's nominated for vice president. Tom, get up there. You know the state. You probably know a lot of people around him. Do that. And it was very uh, a really rich experience for me. And in those days, we would uh, be a kind of outpost for Huntley Brinkley. We would feed them stories. So my reputation began to take hold at a certain level. And then in 1964, I got this magical call uh, late at night from the news director of a huge station in Atlanta called WSB. It was the biggest station in the South. It was in the thick of the civil rights movement. They were constantly feeding stuff to Huntley Brinkley. And he had heard through some one of his friends that I was on the air in Omaha and I was doing the morning news but that I had a certain uh, had certain qualification. He hired me to do the 11 o'clock news in Atlanta. So well, I went to Atlanta. How old were you then? I was 25 when they hired me. And I got to Atlanta, did the 11 o'clock news, and uh, every night after the news I was on an airplane to Haneyville, Alabama, or to America's Georgia. Or, yeah, this was the height of the civil rights movement. It was at the height of it. And uh, when Dr. King would come back and preach at uh, Ebenezer Baptist, I got to know his father. And it was— uh, And him? And him. I didn't get to know him. He's kind of a distant figure. You know, I heard him preach. I got to know Andy in those days and other people. And I was on duty the night that that the SNCC came out with a statement that they were going to be sympathetic to the goals of the Viet Cong. Mm -hmm. And Julian Bond was just elected to the state legislature at that point. And uh, it blew up the South and especially Atlanta. Julie and I were the same age. I didn't know him, but I got to know him during the course of that week because he was under enormous pressure to deny. Because he was a leader of he was SNCC, a leader, the Student it, Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. But uh, at any rate, um, the story became that uh, the uh, state legislature in Georgia decided not to seat him, that he wouldn't get that seat. And the um, federal government got involved. He had FBI protection. I was standing in the Capitol the day that he was going to try to take his seat. And he came walking down the hall with a court honor of FBI agents around him. And by then, we'd gotten to know each other well enough. He kind of looked over and nodded. We're exactly the same age. And it was, for me, a great lesson in moral strength that he was standing up to it. We were both 25 years old. Yeah. And I was a white guy, so it wasn't going to happen to him. But the difference was not just pigmentation, but also his beliefs. I later called him, and I was writing about that time, and I said, Julian, I've never seen anybody more cool, calm, and, and organized than you were. And he said, Broke, I'll tell you how cool I was. I went down to this holding room, and I broke out in hives from the bottom of my feet yeah. to my neck. I, I think we don't appreciate 
um, enough uh, in, the, in retrospect how young so many of these people were. Even Dr. King, yeah, you know, young. when he led the Montgomery bus boycott, was, I think, 26 years old. Yeah. Uh, and uh, really at risk of their lives. They were daily. Um, and the hostility, you know, the interesting thing to go from Omaha, a deeply segregated city where there's no relationship between the blacks and the whites, down to the South where there was some relationship. You know, maids were in the homes. Uh, people were doing the maintenance and lawn work around the houses and that kind of thing. But then the line was drawn at some point. Um, you know, Vernon Jordan tells a great story about coming back from college and working for the big white banker in the summertime as a uh, waiter in his house. And uh, the banker found Vernon in the library uh, reading one. I said, well, what are you doing here, Vernon? He said, well, I go to college. And he said, you go to college? He said, I do. And he said, you can read? And uh, Vernon said, I can. And the next night, Vernon is serving the soup course. And the banker announces to his family, you know, Vernon, uh, I've never had an N-word work for me who could read before. Hmm. That's where we were at that time. So there he was in the house, good relationship in terms of personal relationships, but opera, uh, uh, occupying a separate, separate place altogether. And obviously you made an impression on NBC because you became a, 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 a you went out to L.A. Yeah, six months, after I got to, six months after I got to Atlanta, I'd been on nightly news so much that they, uh, they came and said, we want to hire you and come to Los Angeles. I mean, that was uh, beyond my wildest expectation. I flew out and re- refused the job. It was in the middle of uh, a smog alert of some kind. I don't want to raise my family here. I want to be a Washington correspondent. So I went back to Atlanta, and they thought I was being a very clever negotiator. <laughs> I didn't know anything about negotiation. I just <laughs> didn't want to go to Los Angeles. And then they jacked everything up. They gave me more money than I thought possible to earn as a correspondent. And they gave me the Sunday Night News in L.A. And they said, you're going to be our principal backup uh, for network reporting. And uh, so we went. And I got there at the peak yeah. of the change. 1966. I mean, Ron- that was the year that Ronald Reagan <clears throat> ran against Pat Brown for governor of California. And California uh, was the sort of epicenter of the cultural revolution of the 60s. So what was it like for a young guy uh, to arrive there in that moment? Beyond exhilarating. Uh, I got to know both sides well. I'm still in touch. We've talked about this with Stu Spencer, who yes. was the, uh, the genius behind the Reagan campaign and organizing it. Spencer Roberts was the name of the firm. He was a guy who had come out of the war and was working in county government doing recreational stuff but interested in politics. Got to know him right away. Rode the buses with Reagan around Orange County and other places when he was a very uncertain candidate because he had been so protected in show business that he would never been exposed to going out there and doing it on your own. So it was always carefully managed. Pat Brown, as a personality, was irresistible. Jerry Brown's father. Jerry Brown's father. And, in fact, Jerry had just gotten out of the seminary at that point, and we all became part of a little uh, cadre of young reporters and political operatives, Republicans and Democrats alike, do spaghetti dinners on Saturday night and talk about what was going on. So it was a very exciting time. Uh, You know, I have to tell you that the late Mike Deaver uh, told me about – a time when uh, Reagan was governor of California, and he said, you were coming up from Los Angeles to do a profile uh, piece on Reagan. And he said he outlined the whole day on butcher block paper in the conference room at the Capitol and said, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And at noon, you're going to go down to the courtyard in front of the to the park in front of the Capitol, and you're going to throw your coat over your shoulder, and you're just going to talk to people. And Reagan looked at the whole day, and he said... Everything's fine, but the lunch thing, he said, and Deaver said, what's wrong with that? And Reagan said, I never take my coat off. And if I take my coat off, people will know that it's phony. The camera can read that and so find something else to do. I found that so interesting, the self-awareness that Reagan had and the understanding of of how the camera could pick up phoniness. Yeah. He had great intuition. Uh, 
David. I, you know, at the at the beginning, I wasn't sure he was equipped to govern California, but there were a couple of things that I saw. He got very good people around him. Uh, Mike Deaver was a perfect example of that, but the others that he had next to him as well. And uh, he never overplayed his hand. He'd been in office about six months when Jess Unruh, who was the uh, take no prisoners head of the uh, of the Democratic Party in Sacramento. He, he was a speaker of the assembly. Very, very smart guy. Yes. Never been in, Legendary. Willie Brown was one of his lieutenants, and there was a guy by the name of Moretti who, I mean, they had this whole cadre of people. And I saw Jess after about six months, and we were in his office, and he said, this SOB is a lot smarter than we realized, but we can do business with him because he cuts out all the political chaff when we go in there and then we just sit down and what can we get done here and we could get things done and that was a real insight into uh reagan's kind of we saw it again when he became president with his his dealings with tip o'neill um you you had this knack for arriving in the right place at the right 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 time right so you you finally got to go to washington i did and you arrive as the white house correspondent in 1973, just as the Watergate story is breaking, uh, tell me about that. Well, I got there. The Watergate had kind of been underway, and NBC was saying, you've got to come back and cover Watergate for us. And I had a great life in California. We had just built a house. So having resisted, you right. became and, a Californian. Yeah, but I, and there had been, John Chancellor used to say, you've got to come east and be a grown-up Tom, because <laughs> you know, I would do all these things and then go back to my good life in California. And Meredith had a wonderful life out there. It was, she was very uh, well-known in the community for the work that she was doing. And we just built a house on Venice Beach. And by the way, that house, including the lot, cost $110,000. I, yeah. I don't want to know how much it's worth today, by the yeah, way. More. I think we can assume yeah, more. we can assume a <laughs> yeah. lot more. We'd been in about six months, and they said, you got to come east. I knew I had to do that. And so I arrived in the well, summer. Well, if, if you wanted to be what you wanted to be, you had to do that. Well, that was that was the other thing. It was clear. They said, "Look, you know, you're going to have a big long career here, and there are going to be a lot of stations along the way, and you've got to be our White House correspondent." I had a big reputation in California, modestly, for covering politics and doing well. The L.A. Times reprinted stuff that I did. My best friends were print reporters, and so I got to Washington. As an old print reporter, I applaud. That. Right? Yeah, I get to Washington, and the White House press corps. And it's genius. Wrote a letter to Dick Wall, the president of NBC News, and said, you cannot make this man a White House correspondent. He's come from California where he's done a lot of local reporting. These are the same people who are having their pockets picked by Richard Nixon every day. (laughs) And and their clocks cleaned by Bob Woodward and and Carl Bernstein. And I got there, and because there was so much chaos at the beginning, I hadn't been there 20 minutes, and the Agnew thing happened, uh, that uh, he had to resign, that he was under investigation. Vice President Agnew. Yeah, right. everybody was focused on Nixon. Right. And then this bombshell comes that it's the vice president who's been indicted. Right, for uh, uh, stealing money to buy silverware. I mean, it was this, you know, cheap state house politics that he was involved in. So that happened right away. Then we had the seven-day war, in, or six-day war in Israel, and uh, that blew up, and Nixon was trying to handle that. Stuff was going on all around you. And then I broke a couple of pretty significant stories as the White House correspondent. The first three months, the other part of the White House press corps shut up about me at that point, And I was off and running. And on Saturdays, I would... Do you ever have any doubt when you took the job that you were... No, I didn't. And I was not cocky. I just... First of all, I knew a lot of the people in the Nixon White House had come from California. Right. So I had sources. And then I'm going to tell you something I've never told anyone before. Everybody was playing with conventional sources. I said... You know, there's a better way to find out what was going on, and that would be the congressional relations staff because they would have to carry the water up to the hill. So I went through it, and there was a guy from South Dakota who was on the congressional relations staff. He'd been a staffer for Carl Munch or for one of the others, and I took him to lunch, took him to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and I'm prepared to tell you it was the best pipe I ever had in politics. I knew everything that they were saying to the hill and what they were doing and why they were doing it, and so... I had stuff on the air that my colleagues said, "Where'd you get that?" Um, yeah, that's such that's such that's the thrill of reporting is to find those right those ways in and insights that nobody else has. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Tom Brokaw. Getting back to Watergate, Tom. 
What was your read? You, you, you said you told me what your read was on Ronald Reagan. What was your read on Nixon at that time? He obviously was sinking into the darkness uh, at the time that you arrived. What was your? Well, I'd been a student of his for some time. Um, you know, he had that. Uh, he did have a big California connection. Yes, I knew Bob Haldeman before he became Bob Haldeman because in California he was the UCLA alumni representative on the Board of Regents and was involved with Reagan in the firing of Clark Kerr of the university system. Which is a big story. In big the, story. In and the I 60s. dealt with him constantly. And um, um, so I, you know, I knew the people around him and I also knew how they felt about him. You know, they, they could never quite figure him out. Um, that he had this enormous ambition and this great political instinct and then this extraordinary dark side that nobody could ever completely penetrate. Um, so my read on him was just that. And when I got there, I think that the White House mistakenly thought, oh, well, Tom is from California. He knows all of it. It'll be okay. And um, about three months in, Ron Ziegler uh, said, let's go to lunch. And we go to lunch. And he said... Nixon's press secretary. He was his press secretary. And he said... You know, we thought you'd bring a fresher point of view, but you just bought into all this Washington liberal. I said, look, I'm, I'm just covering what you guys are doing on a daily basis. Uh, and he said, no, we were at lunch at a, at a, a very uh, popular restaurant at that time. And we we're having this very strong exchange. The maitre d' brings over a, a message from somebody in the, in the cafe, and, and Ron grabs it before I can see it. And it turns out it's from... It's from Ethel Kennedy, and the note says, so I guess we won't be seeing you at Hickory Hill for dinner tonight. <laughs> it was a great moment in my life, and Ron kind of said, I told you, Broke. I said, look, I've got pals on the other side as well, Ron. You, uh, uh, were you, I know you went over to the Today Show. Were you, um, were you, you, but you were there when Nixon resigned, obviously. Oh, yeah, I, um, uh, they actually, they, they they tried to get me to come to uh, today before Watergate was resolved, and I wouldn't do it. I just said, there's no way I'm leaving this story. Also, in those days, people forget this, the host of the Today Show had to read commercials. And I said, there's no way I'm going to do this. You know, sell Alpo. Uh, <laughs> that's not who I am. And they got it, but that was, they had such a uh, kind of a, uh, money stream coming out of the Today Show. There, there was no competition. They were just making money by showing up in the morning. So yeah. I went back, and I was there for the uh, for the end of it as well. And then I didn't realize this, but somebody has written a story. I was the last correspondent to ask Nixon a question uh, at a White House press conference. And, uh, and I'll give you, it's kind of an interesting story. We were going down to Houston where he was going to be talking to the National Association of Broadcasters. And we were told, as the White House press corps, that really the questions should mostly come from the local reporters who will be gathered there as well. I'd been working hard on a story that uh, Nixon kept saying that he had executive privilege. He didn't have to give up his papers. I thought, I wonder if that's true in impeachment proceedings. So we, we had a really terrific research. It's a we great to, question. We all went to all the uh, best legal experts including conservative ones at Yale and Harvard, and they said, in times of impeachment, executive privilege goes away. So that was my question. And Dan got up just before I did, and that was the famous Dan exchange. Rather. Dan rather got up before I did, and the famous exchange. There was booing and cheering in the room, and the president said, are you running for something, Mr. Right. Rather? And Dan said, no, sir, are you? Yes. And the room then turned on Dan, Right. sucked all the oxygen out of the room. What did you think when he said that? Well, I thought it was going to make me tough to ask my next question, which <laughs> I was coming up next. Um, you know, Dan, Dan attracted a lot of heat, um, sometimes very innocently and other times deliberately. I mean, he led with his chin on a number of occasions, but he was a bulldog reporter. He was tough yeah. to compete against. Um, so I'm now up next. I got the last question, and I asked this question about, you know, legal scholars say. But by then, the room was so... Um, deflated because of the exchange that they just heard, that it didn't get a lot of attention. And then people began to think about it. What did Nixon say? Uh, Nixon said, no, Mr. Brokaw, you have your scholarship wrong. Uh, I know that I'm doing the right thing. He was still rattled by his exchange with, rather. with, with Dan, and so it was kind of an uncertain run. The next day, Ziegler and others in the White House came. He said, you don't talk to the president that way. I said, what way? They said, you don't challenge. I said, yes, you do. I mean, I have worked on the scholarship of this. What's the last thing that you've done about executive privilege? 
and what how hard you've worked to find out what the uh, underlying premise of it is about not having uh, about having executive privilege during impeachment. So it was those days were very heady and very tough and very tense. I, the University of Iowa was taking my papers, and uh, it turns out I've got a lot more than I realized. And we recently found the transcript of um, one of the tapes. And I had taken it home at 11 o'clock at night, and Meredith has always pointed out it has uh, stains on it because she had left a plate of fried chicken for me to eat in the kitchen. <laughs> I would eat the fried chicken and pick this thing up, and you can still see the stains from the fried chicken. The uh, – what is the uh, – there's the, uh, the, the, the photo everybody remembers of Dixon waving goodbye Leading up to that, you know, there were all the we we saw the Justice Department in disarray and so on. I mean, the drama of it must have been. Well, I'll tell you about that last. A, I'll tell you about that last uh, thirty hours. I've got some anecdotes I haven't talked about much before. One of the things I did as a White House correspondent, no one else was doing. I would slip out of there once a, a month and go up to the Hill to see what they were saying. And I would see Bob Griffin, who was the number two Republican leader mm-hmm. in the Senate, and I would From see Michigan. Bobby Byrd on the Democratic mm-hmm. side and others, and just hear what they were talking about. And they were always trying to get information from me. We do a bartering thing. And uh, the day that the uh, – right after the Supreme Court had ruled against Nixon, and it was on a Monday, uh, everybody was just frozen in place. What's going to happen? I got a call from Bob Griffin at 5 o'clock in the afternoon saying, Tom, you've been very patient with me and very courteous. I'm coming down as part of a delegation tonight that includes Barry Goldwater, and we're going to tell the president he has no choice but to resign. That was a big damn deal at that yeah. moment. So I called uh, New York, and uh, I was very unhappy with the guy. I said, you've got to get a second source. I said, this is golden. I don't need a second source. He said, get a second source. So I thought, how do I do that? I called up Barry Goldwater Jr., who was a member of the House. And I'd known from California, and I said, Barry, it's Tom, what's going on? I said, oh, man, this is really something, isn't it? This thing about your dad coming down here. Yeah, man, I can't believe it. He called me today. And I said, thank you very much. Hung up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Hung up the phone, called New York back, said, I got it. I've got two sources. So we went on Did the they air. cut in? Well, we did. We did. We led nightly news that night. I see. Anyhow, uh, um, and then there was this kind of surreal atmosphere in the uh, in the White House uh, about what was going to happen and why it was going to happen. My source in the congressional relations called me, and he was in a terrible fury because he thought that he understood finally that he'd been a source of a lot of stuff that I'd been using. So everybody was at a very tense place. Now the day that we're in the East Room of the White House, and the president's coming out with his family and makes that speech. And at the back of the room were a lot of staffers. I remember Ron Ziegler teasing Tom Gerald, the ABC correspondent, about a terrible haircut he'd gotten. Now, here is the president of the United States about to resign, and he's talking about Tom Gerald's haircut. And people were kind of hanging around. It's, and it was as if this was enormous relief. It's over. And then Nixon comes out and makes that speech. Then he goes out to the uh, helicopter and raises his hands in defiance of the victory sign and lifts off. And one of his... Uh, principal uh, counselors turned to me and said, I'm going to go fishing. I always remember that line. I'm going to go fishing. I go back to the office and David Brinkley says to me, did you think that he was going to pull out a Derringer and shoot himself when he was up there? I said, what are you talking about? Because I was in the room seeing everything. And he said, come down to the uh, control room and take a look at the television pictures. So on television isolation, you saw, you penetrated Nixon's psyche at that point. Yeah. It was on the screen. You didn't see the staff wandering around and people sitting around talking about what they were going to do. And it always was, for me, a very instructive lesson in the difference between television reality and real reality. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, so you went on, in, in 76, I guess you went, you finally did go on to the I did the Today, Today Show. And it was the, the, you know, they said, look, you're going to be the nightly news anchor at some point. You need to do this. We need you to do this. And I brought my White House instincts there. And in those days, because we had no competition, we could kind of do what we wanted. And I converted it into another platform for my political reporting. ABC at the same time was coming on with, uh, uh, with a very different kind of morning show. And they were doing really well. And we kind of got caught flat-footed by that for two years. It was a struggle. We slipped into second place. And then when Reagan was running for president, 
in that year. I went to every primary in the country. I was on the Today Show in the morning and then special events at night and then the next morning again, and we just smothered the coverage uh, uh, politically, and that's what I did, and we made a big comeback. And Jane Paul had found her place then, and uh, so it was, uh, you know, we made a big recovery, and it was really important. Yeah, I want to add, so so the Nate, the way we look at morning television now, by and large, is yeah. that it's a mix of news and a large smattering of sort of... Yeah. Uh, we did a lot of news. Yeah. yeah. We did a lot of news. Um, this is a story that I think you'll appreciate. Um, during the primary season, when uh, when Jimmy Carter was challenged by Teddy Kennedy, I had that really wired because I knew Bob Strauss extremely well, who was with the president, and I knew Steve Smith was the family member working with Teddy. So I could, you know, kind of dial the two of them up uh, in one way or the other. And when Carter did not win Pennsylvania going against Kennedy, it was a big blow to him. They thought they could put him away in Pennsylvania, and they couldn't. So the next morning, I have Bob on. And he just stiffs me the entire interview. It just doesn't give me any news at all. And I was furious when I called him up afterwards and I said, Strauss, even though we're friends, we have a professional relationship. When I ask you a question, you have an obligation to try to answer it at least. <laughs> he lowered his voice. He had called me actually and he had said, Broca, everybody down here is telling us about, telling me about how well we did this morning. Typical Bob Strauss. Yeah, right. And I, then I lit into him and I finished and he lowered his voice. He said, Broca, you listen to me. I've taken that chicken blank program of yours and that baby face of yours, and I've given it real maturity in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was laughing so hard by the time he finished. I thought, how do you deal with Strauss? Uh-huh. You, uh, uh, in, in 82, then, you finally made it to your right. goal of anchoring the nightly news. And your old subject, Reagan, was president of the United States. Did you did those relationships help you? Well, they didn't. They didn't. One of the things that happened, I talked about this when uh, Mrs. Reagan died. Um, Reagan had kind of built his career on the fact I had been a poor boy from the Midwest, and uh, you know I made it. I struggled to get to where I am, and so I gave an interview, unfortunately, to Mother Jones, in which I said that's so overblown. He did have a difficult childhood. He got a really good job in Iowa and in radio. He was a big star making good money. And then in his mid-20s, he goes to California, becomes a contract player for Warner Brothers and making a lot of money. So this thing, Nancy got furious with me. And so Deaver called me and uh, and Baker called me and said, stay out of her eyesight for a long time. (laughs) And we'll let you know when it's safe to come back. So about two months later, I get a call and say, okay, you're going to be invited to the state dinner for the president of Mexico President, this is not on his radar screen. She's still seething about what you said. You have to figure out what you're going to say to her in the receiving line. So we go down, and Meredith and I are receiving line. Meredith's getting more nervous than I should. Have you figured it out? I said, I haven't figured it out. I'll figure it out. So we get right up to her, and spontaneously, I throw my hands back. She's going to look at me, really steely looking, laugh, and I say, Nancy, back to square one. She laughed, threw her hands back, and said, back to square one. The next, this is how good she was. The next day in my office in New York from the White House photographer arrived that picture of the two of us with Nancy saying, back to square one, Tom. Love, Nancy. Oh, I see. That's, yeah, that's... That tells you a lot. It does. It does. How influential was she with Reagan? Huge. Huge. I mean, the... Baker and everybody else said we'd make big decisions and then we'd run the pipeline through Nancy to make sure that she was on board with us. And he said her instincts were not just personal, they're very political. I think she had a very big influence on him when he was dealing with Gorbachev and the Russians and the Soviet Union. He was an old Cold War hardliner. Evil empire. Right, and she saw this as an opportunity with others as well, George Schultz and Baker and others, for him to become this truly historic figure by making a deal with the Russians. And just little things that she would do. No, I don't think you should do that. That same instinct that he had about I wouldn't take off my coat, she had as well. Um, and and then in public. and he really didn't. He had advisors, but he was he he didn't have intimates in the way other politicians. No, he, had she was his intimate. Yeah. You know, he didn't have a gang that would come down and sit around and have a, a drink with him. He would occasionally get tipped down in others, and then they'd tell stories, you know, the great old Irish stories. Right. But that was a rare occasion. Yeah. So there were a number of big stories in the 80s, uh, uh, the Challenger explosion uh, and, uh, of course, the fall of the 
of the Soviet Union. Uh, well, let's start with the Challenger explosion. I was in the White House that day getting briefed on the State of the Union address that was coming up that night. They would bring us down, as you know, and, and kind of give us the fill, the, court, the yes. anchorman. And Peter and I were there. Dan was not there. And Peter, Peter said, Where, well, where's Dan? I said, I think he just stayed in New York. So uh, Don Regan was the chief of staff, and he was briefing us on what the president was going to say that night. This was how bad his antenna were. Uh, Pat Buchanan got him, left the table in a hurry, and came back and handed uh, Regan a note. And he said, um, Regan said to us, oh, the Challenger is blown up. Uh, just shortly after liftoff at Cape Canaveral. Now back to em- em- <laughs> empowering neighborhoods. And I, I, Peter and I were knocking over furniture, running through the White House press office. I could see John Palmer on the air with it. We got in the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue, trying desperately to flag down uh, a car. And Peter turned to me again and said, where's Dan? And I said, I don't know, but we got to get back to where we were. It was a long day. Yeah. And it was one of those moments in which television, whatever else you think about it, does become the family hearth. Everybody gathers around it to find out what is going on and feel connected to it. And the president becomes the father of the family. Absolutely. And he did, as he so uh, almost uh, matchlessly could do, uh, said just the right things about the family. I actually had a friend on board the Challenger, Judy Resnick, who had been my expert uh, astronaut on earlier launches where they would send somebody from NASA over to work with us. And we would have bets on launch time and other thing. And then I knew she was on board. And uh, it was a hard, hard day. Um, and then you were there when the wall fell. I was. And uh, that was a, an amazing, uh, agreeable set of circumstances. I was in New York, and we had a really smart uh, foreign editor in those days. And, um, and Jerry came to me, and he said, you know, there's nothing going on here. You know, this, it's bubbling up in, in Berlin. Why don't you just go over to Berlin and spend a couple of days, and, and we'll put that on the air. We didn't know the wall was going to come down. So I flew to Berlin um, and got in the next day easily into the eastern sector, which had not been allowed before, and started doing some interesting stories, but they were not worthy of a break-in of any kind. So, so I, we had a satellite ordered. In those days, you had to order them. And, uh, uh, and so... I said, look, I'll just pre-tape this. And the next day, I uh, had this wonderful uh, bureau chief in Frankfurt who said, I've arranged uh, uh, an interview with Gunter Schabowski, who was the propaganda chief for the East, tomorrow afternoon, Tuesday afternoon. So we went out and did a bunch of stuff, go to the news conference where Schabowski is presiding, and uh, he's droning on, and, and the East German press by then had become quite aggressive. And then at about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, German time, somebody hands him a note, and he says, oh, well, the Politburo has decided that members of the GDR can exit and re-enter through any of the, uh, of the portals of the wall. And I remember I had this German cameraman who'd been there forever, and he turned to me, and, he, and we later said it was like getting a message from Venus. You know, we couldn't believe what we were hearing. And he didn't really know what he was saying, Schabowski did. The his, the, just the historical yeah. import. So he broke off, went upstairs, locked himself in his office. We had the interview appointment with him, and my tiny, <laughs> tiny producer uh, just threw herself against the door not to let anybody in. We got from him the full details of what was going on and what this would mean. Ran out. A bunch of print reporters were on the platform, and I said, guys, it's over. This thing is coming down tonight. And because here it is. So I ran back. We had the satellite in place, and I went out to Brandenburg Gate, and uh, the West German students were on top of the wall getting hosed off periodically, trying to encourage the East Germans to come over. And the East Germans were so wary, they thought they'd get shot if they tried to get on top of the wall. And then finally, one of them did, and that was the beginning of that dramatic, dramatic night. You, uh, you grew up in the midst of the Cold War. Right. Um, what did it mean to you? When uh, how 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 astonishing was this? To, well, it was hugely astonishing. Not only that, I was the only correspondent in the world with live satellite capacity that night. Not even the Germans were able to do what we did. Certainly, CBS and ABC didn't do it at that point. And I don't remember. I think CBS, CNN was going, but it didn't. It didn't have satellite capacity then either. We had a worldwide exclusive of historic proportions. Berlin Wall is coming down, which is the symbol of the division between the East and the West. The Soviet Union is going to be over. And so the last thought I had was before I went on the air was, don't screw this one up, Brokaw. It's going to be around a long time. And, uh, 
I just said to the producers back in uh, New York, uh, forget about the script. I'm just going to have to work my way through this. You just have to follow my verbal cues. And I, uh, I must say that it went off pretty well. There's a BBC correspondent who teaches a course in television news who says, I use that performance by you as an example of what you have to do from time to time. Yeah, well, that's... I mean, there isn't a higher wire than that one. No, that was a higher wire. You did high wire. You didn't want to get it wrong, and you didn't want to be, you know, so exuberant that you were losing sight of what your role was to be a professional correspondent and tell people what was going on. I, I want to get to contemporary matters, but I uh, there's one other story that I want to uh, ask you about, and I will right after this ad break. In 2001, you were in New York, uh, when the planes hit the mm -hmm. World Trade Center. Uh, and the thing that you said, you went over to the Today Show, and the thing that you said was, uh, after the second plane hit, uh, this will change us, we're at war here. Uh, how defining was that moment? Well, everyone tells me it was very defining for them. It was not just after the plane hit, it was after the second tower was right. down. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I, I wrote about the greatest generation. I had looked at World War II. Right. I had just written an essay, by the way, for the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. And I remember thinking that morning, this is our Pearl Harbor. And intuitively, about an hour and 20 minutes or whatever it was after I'd been on the air, uh, and we were, the country was in shock, as we were, in a way. We didn't know what was going to happen next. I just looked into the camera and said, this will change us. We're at war. And a lot of people said it was a huge wake-up call for them, that they began to rethink about what the future's going to be about. Um, and I did it intuitively, David. I think that's what reporters have to and do. And do you think, how, how profoundly do you think that sh shaped the last 15 years? Well, I think what happened is that people shifted into another gear watching that day and looking at what was happening. It was just shock and horror, shock and awe as we were seeing this country being attacked. Now they begin to think, as they've said to me later, about the consequences of this, what it's going to mean beyond trying to find bodies and figure out what and how it happened, but how it's going to change our place in the world. And what I really believe, David, is that I think we're in an unmoored place in this country right now. There's so many deep divisions, and people are trying to figure out where they fit into it and what's happened to the country. I think it began with 9-11. Because 9-11, it, it, it undid a sense of security. We realized how vulnerable we were in a modern world, followed immediately by a disastrous invasion of Iraq, followed immediately by the greatest recession since the Depression, followed by the housing crisis and the loss of jobs. There was just a sequence, of, a bunch of bricks beginning to fall out of the structure of America as a result of 9-11. You, you wrote this this fantastic book and follow-ons follow to it, The Greatest Generation. Uh, I've talked to a number of people here about uh, the difference between the political class now and the previous generation of politicians and the impact that having been in World War II together had in, in promoting collegiality. Do you, do you believe that? Do you believe that uh, politicians approached things differently because everyone fought together in that one cause? Absolutely. They came back from the war uh, haunted by what they'd seen, troubled by the friends that they had lost, and determined to make up the years that they had to give to the war. Bob Dole who says, I take five years off my life because of the five years I was in the war. And a lot of people felt that way. And then they had opportunity here, and we were building America again, and the industrial uh, renewal of this country was really exceptional. I lived in a town that was made up, I would guess, 95% of World War II veterans. It was a Corps of an Engineers project building a big dam. And I just wrote about it recently, and they, what I said was, I never heard a war story. Nobody ever told war stories, and they'd all been in horrendous battles. But the American Legion was the power of the community. They did everything. And the veterans just, at the end of the day, went down to the Legion Hall, organized the baseball uh, teams and the Girl Scout and Boy Scout troops and whatever the town needed. The American Legion provided it. Mm -hmm. We just counted on them. And Republicans and Democrats. Republicans and, and Democrats. Um, 
you know, I was just in an Eisenhower project. You know, there were a lot of white guys in those days. You know, mm-hmm. they, they came out. Of, they may have been working class Democrats, but they sure. adored Ike. Of course, yeah. The um, l- let's talk about today. Um, as we speak, we're, um, we 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 just cleared the first uh, presidential uh, debate. Um, tell me uh, how you view Donald Trump. First of all, in 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 light of what you said about the unmoored sort of mood of the country and uh, his, his um, I don't want to say exploitation, but his, his, he has an answer to that. I, in my adult lifetime, uh, I don't remember a time when America, the fabric of America, had become so unraveled. And I think there are a lot of things that are going on. It's Part of what I talked about earlier about uh, the recession, the consequences of it, and how it struck at home, and the expectations people have had. And then I've always said that, you know, the American dream did have limits. You know, in my generation, you could always easily live better than your parents and have a better life. That gets harder as you go on. How many houses can you have? You know, how many college degrees can you have? And so there was uncertainty about that. The world is much smaller now, and people don't feel a sense of security in the middle of America the way that they once did. They, they think it's going to happen to them. I have a friend in small town Iowa who's, um, I think he packs and carries every day because he thinks that the terrorists are going to come get him at some point. Um, and then social media has a huge impact on all of this because you can't sort out the authentic from the provocative about what to believe and what not to believe. And they keep stirring it up. Remember that Donald Trump was the best known of the candidates when he ran for all the uh, offices. Well, you guys at NBC helped with that. I mean, The Apprentice <laughs> yeah. for 14 no, the years was no, was no small reality, base. Big reality television star. And yeah. he, even without that, he, Donald Trump worked constantly, you know, at promoting his own brand, mm-hmm. uh, personally and otherwise. And so I have this uh, river guide friend in uh, Idaho who had this great phrase about difficult clients. He would say, they're half-cocked in the ticked-off position. Oh, he didn't say ticked-off. He <laughs> yes. used the other expression. That's kind of where the country is. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, it, and that it, you say, explains the Trump phenomenon. I think it does. So, you know, look, what he's done is taken the dialogue that used to occur at the two in the morning at the end of the bar between two guys that had a little too much to drink, and he's made it a political uh, dialogue for him. And a lot of people will say, he tells it like it is. Or, you know, I know he's not always right, but by God, it's about time we heard this. Simultaneously, I think Washington has separated itself from Main Street America. Big time. Big time. You know, a lot of us, I don't have to tell you, it's pursuit of money and uh, special interest, and they don't feel connected to their constituencies in the way they once did. And gerrymandering has made it possible for them to do almost anything they want to do, and they're going to get reelected. What? Uh, how, how would you rate the news media's coverage of this election, and what role did the news media play in uh, Trump's? Uh, well, it's mixed. Rise, Look, yeah. I mean, he got on the air a lot. There's no question about it, especially with cable. There's uh, a figure that said he had two billion dollars in free you know, coverage, which was exponentially more than any other candidate. Right. He did, but also the obligation is if he would say something outrageous, it would be newsworthy. So you had to go cover him, what he was doing. And he knew that. And you knew that. Here's my issue with our coverage this year. Um, We're covering the flame and not the ignition process. But what has started this uh, flame across America there's not been enough detailed coverage, for example, of the real impact of immigration and the details of it. Not nearly enough coverage about job creation in America. And, and what, the changes that globalization and technology have, have wrought. Right, exactly. So, um, you know, we're, we're just drawn to the candle at the moment and the, and the, uh, and the Roman candle in this case. And uh, we've got to get beyond that on television. On the other hand... You know, you look at the Sunday morning shows and some of the interviews and the stuff that has been done, and they've been held to it on both sides, by the way. I thought that, uh, I thought that uh, Senator Clinton made a big mistake by saying at that fundraiser, you know, it's a basket full of deplorables, you know, 
that only irritates and divides the country. It doesn't unite the country in some way. That was the wrong thing to say. Somebody said to me, well, it's true. And I said, if you're a hardware store owner in a small town in Iowa on Main Street, and you're, you know, you're not happy with her and you're kind of looking at him, and then she says that, guess where you're going to go? You're going to go to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so there have been mistakes made across the board. Uh, watching that debate, first of all, you've been in that position of moderating these right. things. Uh, how do you think Lester Holt did? Well, he's my pal and he's my colleague, and we had talked beforehand. You know, I might have chosen a different way of going about it, but when you stop and think about it, we got insights into both of them that night about where they are and, and where they're going. He he really did want to be a facilitator uh, rather than a, just a fact checker. Mm-hmm. You, you can never do that job perfectly, having been there. I remember running into you going into Nashville and you saying, are we going to be okay? Because I had said something about Obama's absence of military command experience. And you were nervous about it. So you get worked by everybody. Yes. Uh, Yes. I know. I know as a big sports fan and I know you're a sports fan. Uh, there's called working the referee. Right, exactly. And uh, you see a lot of that there. What do we learn in in those debate in in this last debate about these two candidates? Well, one was I thought I mean, two things. I think we learned is that when uh, she gets prepared, she's the best lawyer in the room. Uh, it was a highly skillful performance, in my judgment, and she. One of the things, you, you always look at everything at a candidate, including the kind of facial expressions and the, and the tone of her personality. And up to then, she had been, I thought, uh, far too stern in all of her performance. You know, everything was furrowed brow and kind of lecturing yes. with her finger out there. This time, she turned around with somebody entirely different. He started like he kind of listened to some of his advisors, but then he played to his worst instincts. Again. Didn't she help in that regard? I mean, she seemed to push every hot button he had. Oh, she knew it. She, she was hitting every button. And um, and he just, you know, look, he's got an enormous ego. He just thinks because he won the Republican nomination with a record number of votes, he can do no wrong. And that's a commentary on political naivete, frankly. Let me ask you, you must know him. Uh, a little bit, not much. What uh, do you think, This the, the big question it seems to me that he needed to answer in this debate and he didn't do it was, does he have the temperament, does he have the depth to be president of the United States? You've been close to that job. You've watched it. I've been close to that job. I had the office next to a president. It's a very, very pressure-filled and difficult job. Uh, do you feel that he can is fit to handle that job? Well, what I think is, without getting into that, is that people always um, underestimate, even those of us who are pros, like you going into the White House, the difference between what you knew before you got there and when you got inside, how complex it is, how tough it is, how the stuff comes in 24-7, yeah. uh, through the door, o- through the windows, over the transom, about decisions that you have to make have great consequences. And then you also have to have a big vision about what you want, not just for this country, but the place for America in the world, um, given our history and the future of where we're going to be. I don't think there's much evidence that he thought that through very well. uh, Some of his supporters like to compare him to Ronald Reagan because Reagan, as you remember, in 1980, there was this fear that he was too extreme, that he didn't have depth, you know, the whole calling ketchup a vegetable thing. and uh, But he'd been governor of California for right. eight years, so he had a way to measure him. And also, one of, the, one of the telltale signs about the Reagan political career, he surrounded himself with really smart people. George Schultz and Cap Weinberger were at opposite ends of the spectrum, two really smart people. Jim Baker, as chief of staff, was the gold standard, frankly. Uh, he'd worked against him. But Reagan and his team knew to bring Baker in because of how good and he was. And Reagan was willing to accept him. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you don't see that in Trump. No. Well, hard for me to see that in Trump, frankly. But on the other hand, you cannot underestimate his kind of visceral appeal to a lot of people. Yeah, well, I too. think that's been demonstrated. Yeah. I think it goes to what you've talked about. Yeah. I think there is a yearning for uh, uh, the strong man to make right. things right. If we have to blow it up to start over again, let's blow it up. I mean, that's how a lot of people feel. And and it's exaggerated. The uh, the malaise in, in the American system is exaggerated by social media. I mean, it runs contrary a lot of what they're doing to uh, what the facts are. 
the the role of the anchor, the the news anchor, you followed you were followed uh, in the following generation after Walter Cronkite, Huntley, and Brinkley. Um, you know Ed Murrow. Uh, you know these 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 were really really iconic characters right. in American life, and we all got our news from one of them because there wasn't this multiplicity right. uh, of news sources. Uh, has the the role of news anchor changed? Well, it's diffused. There's so many of them now. I mean, Dan Peter and I had a great, great run. We had satellites available. We were all reporters. We could jump on the plane and go around the world and report what was going on. And as Peter said when I was leaving the job, people often ask whether we're friends. And, uh, and Peter says, uh, yes, because we don't see each other that much. <laughs> but he said we have this mutual regard for our reporting instincts. And I think we always thought of ourselves as reporters first and then anchors second. And I think the country saw it that way. Now there's a different uh, job description, frankly, for being an anchor. Um, and, and, and there are a lot of them. So it's hard to, for one to break out over the other. You've got traditional broadcast outlets like Lester and NBC, but then you've got all the cable anchors as well. And they, um, it, it's hard for people sometimes to sort out. Have we lost something? Uh because uh, less of a premium is put on uh, on the reporting element of it? Well, I think we sh- – I do think, and I, we've talked about this, I do think that we have to emphasize the reporting part of it a lot more. We've had a great year at NBC with what we call the Road Warriors. We've got these killer women out there yes, covering these campaigns. they've done a great job. And they're damn good. Yeah. And uh, I'm just so proud of them. And that's the kind of thing that you want to elevate. And the country responds to it. Yeah. I took uh, – to Kelly Jackson to a party in Oak- in Montana she's this year. Been with covering uh, Trump, right? And uh, took her. To well, a- uh, I guess she's been covering the Republicans generally. Yeah, she's coming back and forth. Anyhow, I took her to a party in in Montana in a, near our ranch, and we had guys like the writer Tom McGuane, and musician Dave Bruce, and Michael Keaton who was at his house. She was a rock star when she walked in. It was thrilling for me because they said, "I learned so much from you. I mean, you're so good at what you do." And she's young, and she'd not been known before, but she is good, and they. They've been working every day for the last nine, ten months. So it's a great crowd. I just want to finish, Tom, by uh, asking you about your uh, struggles with cancer. You you wrote a very uh, affecting, poignant book called The Lucky Life Interrupted, a memoir of hope. Um, You've had a very charmed life, and then you were diagnosed with multiple myeloma Tell me a little bit about that and what you've learned from that. Experience. Well, Sunday in the uh, New York Times, I have a piece on the op-ed section about three years into it. And uh, what I say is that you never, ever can completely appreciate a diagnosis of cancer if you're on the outside looking in. But once you get diagnosed, you enter what I call the cancer ecosystem. You become part of a different universe, uh, both with your own experience and what's going on in your body, the relationship that you have with your family, and the relationship that you have with other cancer patients and with the medical system. Um, and it's been instructive, and it's, you know, it's fascinating. I'd rather not have cancer, no question about it. I have a cancer that is um, incurable but treatable, and I'm on the treatable part of it right now, and uh, that's working well. On the other hand... Uh, I've had two friends in the course of these three years who had the same diagnosis as I do, and they both died. Um, I am at um, three years into a five-year lifespan that you have with multiple myeloma. That's the cold statistical lifespan. My doctors all say, you're doing so well, you're going you're gonna to die, but it's not going to be multiple myeloma. We think you're going to go beyond that. And it preoccupies you every day. Uh, you feel it physically, and if you don't feel it physically, you feel it emotionally. You know, you can get up after having a great day the day before and uh, get up in the morning and think, God, I got cancer. And I'm going to have to go in and take 20 pills today to deal with it, including I'm on chemo right now. I took a pill this morning that's effectively a poison against the cancer. And uh, thank God it's working. So it's hard to describe how it never leaves your mental and physical uh, system. It's it's always there. I, it's gotten better. At the beginning, I was bewildered by what I was going through, but I tried to mask that a little bit. It helped to be a journalist, quite honestly, because I'm used to dealing with difficult circumstances, and I always had a kind of a, a, a binary way of looking at life. You know, On the one side, I would be uh, Tom Brokaw, the outdoorsman, and the interested in history, and, and the other side, I was a journalist always, and I'm always looking at 
it right. journalistically about what I can learn, what I need to know. Um, you know, to get to where you got in life, you had to have this sort of preternatural drive, and this, uh, and you had to make sacrifices, and your family had to make sacrifices. Uh, I wonder if you uh, look at if you value the th- things differently now, and if you look at each day differently. Because, I mean, we're all, in a sense, living a death sentence. But when you're faced with what you're faced with, you really come face-to-face with your own mortality, and the, each day must become much more precious. Yeah, I don't wake up every day, though, David, and think, I'm going to die of this cancer. I mean, my line has been, I don't know about death because I've never died. I do know a lot about living, and that's, how, that's what I'm concentrating on. Yeah. I'm concentrating on living. Yeah, and do, but I guess my question wasn't so much about whether you're dwelling on the yeah. dark side, but does it make the days richer? Some days it does, and then some days I think to myself, Brokaw, get a grip. What, why are you getting on another airplane to go to something you really don't have to do? But that is a result of momentum of how I've lived my entire life. I mean, I was gone for an entire month this summer. I had two trips to Brazil for the Olympics, and then I had Cleveland and Philadelphia. And we have a ranch in Montana, and I got back, and the river had been shut down because of a parasite, and uh, and then I developed a huge kidney stone. <laughs> God is saying, Broca, you've had a pretty good life up to this point. Now I'm in charge for a while. I shouldn't let you go without saying that among those travels over the years, you stopped by in Chicago to do a uh, a benefit for Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy. Our mutual friend Tim Russert had done it. Uh, before you, and so I, I feel like on behalf of all those people who've been the beneficiaries of your travels and have stolen some of your time, that I, I need to thank you for that. Tim and I thought that was one of the most important things we ever did. Tim and I came from common roots, working class families. His great relationship with his dad, and my relationship with my dad, got to places we never expected to get to, but always knew that we had other obligations and we were connected to people who, like you, Susan, had going through this terrible, difficult experience, but with exceptional bravery and the right kind of attitude. And your daughter was, <laughs> uh, I think about her a lot, you know, yeah. how brave she is and how lucky I have been with my children. They all feel the same way, however. Uh, that, you, know, God, you know, we've had a great life. Yeah. Well, I find that these challenges um, are, as you say, you'd rather not have them But all of them are enriching. Uh, You know, my daughter, who's battled with epilepsy all her life, uh, is a great inspiration because she's fought her way through so much, and she's loving and cheerful. And that's uh, a great note in which to end. (laughs) Great, great to have you here. Great to be here, David. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.